Welcome, Weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the Nocturnal Readers Box at thenocturnalreadersbox.com and be listening at the end of this episode as I give you a very special deal that they are offering only to Weirdo family members. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. Cat sat alone on her couch, shoveling popcorn into her mouth. She stared at her TV, tied to the suspense of the movie. The sky darkened as the sun approached the horizon, hidden behind the ocean of trees her house lay among. One lone tree stood in the center of her yard, visible through the living room window. A menacing presence filled the area, yet to make itself known. Cat was glued to her movie, but still able to catch a glimpse of the black object aimed at her door. Thud! Cat jumped, startled by the unexpected disturbance, spilling the popcorn. What the hell? She whimpered, approaching the door. The doorknob was cold in her hand. Her heart pounded in her chest. The hinges squeaked as the door creaked open. A rush of cold air washed Cat's face as her eyes scanned the dim yard. Nothing could be seen. Nothing made a sound. She slowly shut the door, then cleaned up the popcorn. She had just sat down when another black object hit her door with a louder thud than before. She looked at the tree in the yard, almost certain she saw what threw it. Cat sat there watching the tree, waiting for something to happen. It's just some kids, she thought. Nothing to worry about. She quickly made herself comfortable and began to turn on another movie. Minutes passed and another thud shattered the silence, shaking the door. Cat raced for the lock and quickly shut the blinds. They'll go away, she said, but grabbed a knife to calm her nerves and give her a sense of security. She heard light pecking on the living room window. The pecking grew louder, faster. She froze there in place, staring at the windows as the tapping became more profound. Tap, tap, tap. She was afraid to investigate, but brave enough to stand her ground. Her home was small, and every hiding place would be too predictable. Tap, tap, tap. Besides, she didn't want to hide. She wanted to see it coming instead of cowering in fear. The tapping suddenly stopped. Cat slowly made her way to the door and put her back to it. A shadow eclipsed the light from the window atop the door. She stood just out of sight, holding her breath. With her back pressed against the wood, she could feel it knocking. Three times softly, Cat could hear the galloping beat of her heart in her head her anxiety raised to the peak. 
three more knocks hit the door, harder this time. Let me in, a hoarse whisper slipped through the door and into Kat's ears. She bit her lip, tears filling her eyes. Another three knocks erupted. Furious now, let me in, a now angry voice ordered. The knocking didn't cease. It grew harder as the voice grew louder. Let me in! Let me in! Let me in! The knocking grew so fierce it could have shattered the door. Tears leaked from her eyes. What do I do, she thought. Should I open the door? The knocking was more than she could bear. I know you're in there, cat, it said. Her stomach twisted. Her breath caught in her throat, and tears now streamed down her face. Go away! She shouted finally. Let me in! It screamed in response. Leave me alone! She cried. The voice and the knocking echoed in her head, making her more nauseous than before. Reaching for the lock hesitantly, she sucked up her tears and held her breath, unlocking the door and throwing it open. Nothing was there. The tree stood in the yard, unmoving, no wind. Nothing. She shut the door shaking in fear. With the click of the lock, the room grew cold. Goosebumps covered her skin. A voice whispered behind her, Thank you for letting me in. Remarkable and unexplained phenomenon took place in a small village in Sweden over 200 years ago. As you are about to find out, not all unidentified flying objects are potential alien spacecraft. Some are much stranger. On May 16, 1808, people living in the small village of Biskopsburga, Sweden, witnessed something that cannot be easily explained. The village does no longer exist, but at the time of the event, it had 300 inhabitants. It was a hot and cloudless afternoon. The wind was blowing from the west. People were still busy working on some of the farms when they noticed that the sun over the village suddenly grew dim. The sun became so dark that you could stare right into it without feeling any pain in your eyes. At the same time, the great number of spherical objects appeared from the western horizon. The objects were small and measured just a few inches in diameter. They were dark brown and it appeared as if they were heading toward the sun. The objects changed from dark brown to black as they got closer to the sun. Then they changed their course slightly. They moved in a straight procession across the sky to the eastern horizon. When they approached the sun, they lost speed, and after passing in front of the sun, the object's speed increased again. All the time, new spheres appeared from the west and then disappeared in the east. It was impossible to estimate how many spheres were flying across the sky. It seemed as if millions of small balls were suddenly filling the heavens. According to Transactions of the Swedish Academy of Sciences from 1808, the phenomenon lasted uninterruptedly upwards of two hours, during which time millions of similar bodies continually rose in the west 
one after the other irregularly and continued their career in exactly the same manner. Among the witnesses to this event was K.G. Wettermark, a respectable citizen and secretary of the Swedish Academy of Sciences. Not far from where Wettermark was standing, one of the spheres fell down and he could observe the ball's behavior when it touched the ground. Wettermark noticed that just before the spheres hit the ground, they resembled those air bubbles which children use to produce from soap suds by means of a reed. When the spot where such a ball had fallen was immediately after examined, nothing was to be seen but a scarcely perceptible film or pellicle as thin and fine as a cobweb which was still changing colors but soon entirely dried up and vanished. What were these bubbles? Why were there so many? Why were they all changing their course? Was the strong wind the reason why the spheres were all heading in one direction? Most likely it was a natural phenomenon that has yet to be explained by science. A case like this one can be very difficult to study as it occurs rarely. A similar, although not identical, incident occurred on August 7, 1566 in Basel, Switzerland. Citizens of the city could observe how a large number of black spheres invaded the skies. The objects were appeared to be involved in an aerial battle and were flying towards the sun. At the time when the sun rose, one saw many large black balls which moved at high speeds in the air towards the sun, then made half turns, banging one against the others as if they were fighting a battle out of combat. A great number of them became red and igneous. Thereafter, they were consumed and died out wrote Samuel Cosius, the student in Crowned Writings and Liberal Arts, who consigned the strange events in the city's gazette. The sighting lasted several hours. The difference between these two sightings is that the black spheres witnessed in Switzerland were unable to survive the heat from the sun. The bubbles in Sweden changed direction when they approached the sun. Without doubt, the inhabitants of Biskopsburga were puzzled by what they had seen. Today, 200 years later, no one has been able to solve the mystery of what appeared in the sky over Biskopsburga on May 16, 1808. Perhaps you have an idea. Maybe you've heard of a similar incident that could shed some light on what happened in the small village in Sweden. For now, this case remains unsolved. Key West has always been home to some of America's great eccentrics. It's a place that, far removed from the mainland of America, serves as sort of the last outpost for writers, dreamers, musicians, and weirdos. I consider it one of the greatest places on Earth, if that tells you anything. But in 1940, news spread around the island that something very strange was taking place in Dr. Von Kossel's local laboratory and when details were revealed about what it was, we finally discovered just what was too much, even for Key West folks to handle. July 31, 1909 marks the birth date of Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos, the daughter of a Key West cigar maker named Francisco Pancho Hoyos and his wife Aurora. Maria Elena had a bit of a tragic life, she had a sister who died from tuberculosis, 
and a brother-in-law who was electrocuted on a construction site. Soon after she was married, she miscarried and her husband abandoned her and moved to Miami. To make matters worse, Maria Elena also contracted tuberculosis, a typically fatal disease at the time. She sought treatment at the United States Marine Hospital in Key West, and that's when her story takes a very strange turn. While at the hospital, she met a German-born radiologic technologist named Karl Tanzler, or as he liked to refer to himself, Karl von Kossel. Tanzler actually had many names. He was born Karl Tanzler, or George Karl Tanzler, on February 8, 1877, in Dresden, Germany. Little is known about his true background because his invented one was so confusing and changed often. He grew up in Germany but claimed to have traveled to India and Australia where he did electrical work, bought boats, purchased a South Seas island, and began building a transocean flying plane around the time of World War I. When the war broke out, he alleged that he was jailed by British authorities for safekeeping and was released at war's end. We do know that he emigrated to the United States in 1926 via Cuba. From Cuba, he settled in Zephyr Hills, Florida, where his sister lived. In 1927, he took a job at the U.S. Marine Hospital using the name Carl von Kossel. It was at the hospital that he met Elena Hoyos, and he immediately fell in love with her. He later claimed that as a child, he was visited by visions of a dead ancestor, Countess Anna Constantia von Kossel, who revealed to him the face of his true love, an exotic, dark-haired woman. He was convinced the vision had been of Elena. Tanzler, with his self-professed medical knowledge, attempted to treat and cure her with a variety of medicines, as well as X-ray and electrical equipment that were brought to Maria's home. He showered her with gifts of jewelry and clothing and professed his love to her. There's nothing to say that Elena ever reciprocated his affections. It's likely that she was baffled by the attention given to her by a strange little man. Despite Tanzler's best efforts, Elena died from tuberculosis at her parents' home on October 25, 1931. Tanzler paid for her funeral, and with the permission of her family, he then commissioned the construction of an above-ground mausoleum in the Key West Cemetery, which he visited almost every night. No one knows what finally pushed Tanzler over the edge, but it's believed that he heard Elena calling to him from her grave, asking him to free her from her stone prison. He later stated that Elena's spirit appeared to him when he sat next to her tomb and serenaded her with her favorite song. So one night in April 1933, Tanzler crept into the cemetery and removed Elena's body from the mausoleum, carting it out of the graveyard in a toy wagon. He took her home with him, and that is when things got even stranger. Tanzler wired Elena's bones together with wires and coat hangers and fitted her face with glass eyes. As her skin began to decompose, he replaced it with silk cloth that had been soaked in wax and plaster. When her hair fell out, he fashioned a wig from hair that had been given to him by Elena's mother soon after her funeral in 1931. He filled her cadaver with rags so that she could keep her original form, and he dressed Elena in her own clothing, stockings, jewelry, and gloves. 
Tanzler also used copious amounts of perfume, disinfectants, and preserving agents to mask the odor and slow the decomposition of the body. He had to do so because he kept Elena's body in his bed. In October 1940, Elena's sister, Florinda, heard rumors of Tanzler sleeping with the disinterred body of her sister and confronted Tanzler at his home where Elena's body was discovered. Tanzler was arrested and detained for desecrating Elena's tomb. Stealing her corpse was not illegal at the time. Tanzler was examined by psychiatrists, but they found him mentally competent to stand trial. After a preliminary hearing, though, the charges had to be dismissed. The statute of limitations for the crime had expired. The case drew the attention of South Florida newspapers, and it created a sensation among the public, both regionally and across the country. Believe it or not, the public mood toward Tanzler was generally sympathetic. Many viewed the eccentric German as romantic. There was no conclusive evidence at the time that Carl had sexual relations with Elena's corpse, but later examinations suggested that it was possible. During the furor over the story, Elena's body was examined by pathologists and then put on public display at the Dean Lopez Funeral Home in Key West, where it was seen by nearly 7,000 people. Elena's corpse was eventually returned to the Key West Cemetery and was reburied in an unmarked grave in a secret location to prevent any further tampering. In the aftermath of the discovery, Tanzler left Key West, but he didn't do so in shame. He returned to Zephyr Hills, Florida and wrote an autobiography that appeared in the pulp magazine Fantastic Adventures in 1947. He became a U.S. citizen in Tampa in 1950. He never got over his obsession with Elena Hoyos. Still longing for his lost love, he created a death mask of her as the basis for a life-sized dummy which he kept in his bed until his death on July 3, 1952. Some accounts of Tanzler's death claim his body was actually found in the arms of the dummy, but this is merely wishful thinking by those of morbid sensibilities. According to his obituary, he died on the floor of his home. It was noted, though, that overlooking his corpse was a waxen image wrapped in silken cloth and robe. It seems that his replacement Elena was with him to the very end. One night, my friend and I were walking in Des Moines. We were walking halfway to his house when suddenly I was standing outside of a huge skyscraper building in what I now believe to be Detroit. I then entered that building and there was a lady with kind of platinum blonde hair. Her clothes didn't look odd or anything. She told me that I was on time for my appointment, so I followed her to an elevator. We stepped inside and she pushed the button for the 53rd floor. When we got out of the elevator, I followed her to some office. The walls and the floor were done in a decorative, business-like way. We got to the door, and she told me to go in and sit down. When I went into the office, it was a huge office. 
I don't think I have ever seen a view so panoramic and beautiful as that one. He told me to sit. I don't remember him telling me any name. He then started to tell me that they were happy that I had joined and I would be a perfect fit. All of a sudden, I'm in a pretty good-sized hallway with about 50 other people standing in a military-type line. We all had the same blue and black uniforms on and were marching through a big open garage-style door. Then I was back in Des Moines, kneeling on the ground by some bushes, and my friend asked me what was wrong. I asked how long I had been kneeling, and he said just for a couple of seconds. I told him what happened, and still, to this day, he gives me so much crap about it, saying that I'm crazy and I should be checked out, but other than that time, nothing like this has happened. It was the weirdest thing. Even writing this, it sounds crazy to me, but I do think I walked through a time warp. In a town named Kutnahora in the Czech Republic, there is a very famous ossuary that is said to contain the bones of between 40,000 and 70,000 people. The site, which is beneath the cemetery of the Church of All Saints just outside of Kutnahora, is a very creepy visit. Four huge bell-shaped mounds of bones in each corner of the chapel are accentuated by delightful human skeletal chandeliers hanging from the ceiling. There is even a coat of arms, all made from human skeletal remains on the wall. The story behind how this came to be is fascinating. Back in 1278, a monk returned from the Holy Land with soil from Golgotha. This was spread in the cemetery, making it a much-wanted final destination of many people in the region. The results of a 14th-century Black Death outbreak and 15th-century wars in the region also ensure that there were many thousands buried there during that period as well. The ossuary was created when rebuilding work meant digging up many of the bodies in the 1400s, and this practice continued to make room for new tenants in the cemetery for several hundred years. The macabre decorations in the place were the brainchild of a woodcarver, given responsibility for the place in 1870. The place has a very strange atmosphere. It's probably just the imagination as you are surrounded by skeletons. But who knows, with some 50,000 remains, there surely must be one or two spirits haunting the place. This happened sometime in the 90s. I was engineering manager at the time. In my position, I dealt with quite a lot of sales reps. One in particular was a gentleman whose name was Jack Heaps. This particular morning as I drove to work, 
I can remember thinking that it was a horrible, very rainy and windy day. Later that day, I was informed that Jack had been killed in a collision with an articulated lorry that had jackknifed across the road. Some weeks later, another manager from another company had decided to go into work earlier, just to check on the heating as it was winter. When he arrived at work, he found Jack there sat in his car. He asked Jack why he was there so early, but got no answer, which was quite unusual for Jack as he was normally a very bubbly, jokey type of person. He asked Jack to stay where he was until he checked on the heating, then he would return and they'd go out for a cup of tea. When he returned, Jack had gone. Later that day, he phoned the company that Jack worked for to ask why Jack was there so early. They inquired what time he was there, and when the manager told them, he was told it could not have been Jack, as that was the time that he had been killed. At the time, the person who told me this story asked me not to tell this to anyone as the person who told him didn't wish to appear as being stupid if this story was spread. I never told anyone until now, nearly 20 years later. My girlfriend and I were staying at a hotel in Portland. We'd saved up all through our first semester in college for the trip and were very excited. It was Friday night and we were spending time with another couple who had made the trip with us. At around 3 in the morning, the party was in full swing, but we had run out of beer. I decided to go and get some from a little store we had seen a few blocks away from the hotel. I took my girlfriend's keys and I headed out of the hotel to her car. As I turned down the street to where the car was parked, a misty rain filled the air. Not really raindrops, but a kind of misty, directionless rain. The streetlights lit my path and reflected their dim glow in the wet pavement. As I reached the car and slid my keys into the trunk latch, I heard this voice call out, Hey there! Thinking I was alone and not having seen anyone as I was walking down the street, I was very startled and I whirled around to be greeted by the face of an adolescent who gazed at me intently from just a few feet away. I was really unnerved and by reflex I jumped back and then grabbed my chest and said something like, Jesus man, you just scared the shit out of me. The kid just kept looking at me, undaunted. He appeared to be between the ages of 10 and 13 and wore old jeans and a hooded sweatshirt. His hair was black and his skin was tan. He had a Mediterranean look about him. It was then that I noticed that his eyes were all black. My first thought was that he was on drugs because I know that that can dilate your pupils and give that type of appearance, but this kid didn't seem to be on any kind of drug. He seemed very calm and confident. It was kind of unnerving to have a kid act like that. He said, without looking away, I'm lost and scared. Do you think you could give me a ride to my mom's house? 
but this kid didn't look scared at all. Masked behind those youthful features was the expression of a wolf leering at me. I'm a fit 25-year-old man, and what I felt was real fear. He kept moving closer and closer to me. With a lot of effort, I broke eye contact. It was difficult, though, because those eyes were compelling. Deep pools of black, they looked ageless in contrast with that young face. They stared at me, reflecting the streetlights. It was seriously creepy. I backed off up onto the curb and stammered, I can't, I have to go. I kept looking at the ground because I had the feeling that if I kept looking at his black eyes, I would become trapped like a fly in a spider's web. It was then that I looked up and saw down the road another young boy and a girl about a block further down in the middle of the street. I didn't have my glasses on and I have trouble seeing clearly off that far, but I'll be damned if it didn't look like they were floating towards us a couple of inches off the ground. I turned around to run and I heard a guttural growling behind me. I ran faster than I ever ran in my life, straight towards the hotel. I kept feeling like they were right there behind me. When the hotel was in sight, I finally looked back and I found myself alone. I kept running though. I didn't stop until I was again with my friends. I believe they took the trip with me in spirit and I truly believe I was lucky that night. It was a terrifying experience. I've been listening to all the accounts you've posted about black-eyed kids. I believe I met one several years ago. This took place about six years ago when I was in my senior year of high school. It was a cold night in the middle of winter. I had decided to stop and get something to eat on the way home. As I left the school building, I saw a girl standing by my car. I walked towards her. She was wearing a hoodie and jeans and seemed to be just standing still, staring in my general direction. By the time I stood a few feet in front of her, I could see her eyes. They were completely black. I want to travel with you, she said. I said nothing. I was rooted to the spot. Give me a ride, she said. I literally broke into a run, ran around the side of the car and unlocked it, jumped inside, and she was now bent over, peering at me through the window. Let me in, she said, wrapping her knuckles against the car window. I turned the ignition key, put my foot on the pedal, and got away from her. Thankfully, the school gates were open, and I could just fly through them and head for the freeway. I haven't seen her since, but several friends of mine claim to have seen the same girl wanting a lift after school. I hope nobody decides to take her in. I live with my father and two nights ago, I dropped him off at the airport as he was spending a month in Florida. 
I fell asleep at 3.30 in the morning, very exhausted, but was jarred awake at exactly 5 a.m. I could not understand why I was awake, since I knew I was exhausted, but then I heard it. Footsteps coming up my stairs. The sound was clear as a bell. The logical part of my mind was trying to make sense of it. I wondered if perhaps my father had returned from Florida, but I knew he would have called. The footsteps moved into the hallway and crept closer to my bedroom. As the steps drew closer and closer, I watched the handle on my bedroom door just waiting to see it turn. I then heard whatever it was take two steps into my father's bedroom, then nothing. I waited five minutes and then went out to investigate. In the back of my mind, I knew I wasn't going to find a person. Still, I opened my door and peeked into Dad's room. I didn't see anyone. Frightened, I returned to my room, switched on the lights, and left them on for the remainder of the morning. Since that night, I have been awakened a few times, but I have not heard the footsteps again. I must say, nothing is more frightening than hearing footsteps coming right up to your door. When I was in my 20s, my sister rescued a tiny little tabby kitten from a freeway underpass. The kitten would have surely been hit by a car had Sue not stopped traffic to save her. I fell in love with this soft bundle of sweetness and knew that I would have to keep her. I named her Tabitha, and she was a loyal and treasured pet for eight wonderful years. After many happy years together, Tabitha developed diabetes, and it ravaged her body in a very short amount of time. Nothing seemed to slow the progress of this terrible disease. We couldn't get her blood sugar regulated, and she died of cardiac arrest. I was devastated. We buried her in a pet cemetery, and I visited her gravesite and placed flowers on her stone marker for many years after she passed. She had been a very special cat indeed and I missed her terribly. Tabitha had always slept with me. I would settle in under the covers, and she would jump up on the bed and nestle in the crook of my legs. This was our nightly ritual for many years. It was a few weeks after she had died when I first noticed the telltale signs that my sweet kitty might still be with me in spirit. I would find toys that I had bought for Tabitha lying in the middle of the floor even though I had no cats at the time. She was always losing her toys. They would end up under the sofa or the bed, or they would just disappear, never to be seen again. Some of the toys that were turning up were ones that I hadn't seen in years. I wanted to believe that this was a sign from Tabitha, but I didn't want to read too much into it. That was until she started jumping on the bed. I would climb in bed, as I always did, settle in under the covers, turn on my side, 
and then I would feel the bed move as something jumped onto the bed and curled up in the crook of my legs. I would immediately reach down and feel for Tabitha, but she wasn't there. Nothing was there. This happened night after night for months. I never saw a cat or anything else jump onto the bed, but I felt the phantom cat's presence, and it became a great comfort to me. And then it stopped. I imagine now that maybe this was my much-loved cat's way of telling me that she was okay now. Everything was fine. She missed her life, but it was time for her to move on. It was time for me to move on as well. I'm still glad that she gave me that reassurance that love never dies. It just turns into something else. A warm place in your heart where lost love can rest for eternity. centuries ago, Europe experienced a strange suicide wave. A large number of young men were found dead without any obvious reason. It was soon established that the men had nothing in common with each other. However, they were all dressed in the same clothes, and every one of them committed suicide by shooting themselves. A closer investigation revealed a shocking discovery. All of the men had read a specific best-selling book. The book is still very popular today. Can written words affect people to such a degree that thousands decide to commit suicide? What happened? In 1774, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, one of the greatest German writers, published his novel The Sufferings of Young Werther. It only took him four weeks to complete the work, but the repercussions of his book were long-lasting and catastrophic. Geth's influence spread quickly across Europe, and for the next century his works were a major source of inspiration in music, drama, poetry, and philosophy. Unfortunately, one of his works was also associated with a large number of deaths. His book, The Sufferings of Young Werther, was about Werther, a young middle-class artist who fell in love with a woman he could not have. Lota, who Werther loved deeply, was already engaged to another man. Although Lota loved Werther, she decided to remain faithful to Albert, her fiancé. Werther could not control his emotions and accept the situation. Since he cannot be together with Lota, he decides to commit suicide and shoot himself in the head. Geth's book became quickly a bestseller. European youth appreciated the sad story as it reflected so much of what many young people felt. Werther's strong feelings captured many hearts. Even Napoleon Bonaparte, the famous French military leader, always carried a copy of the book whenever he went to war. Unfortunately, what Geth had not anticipated was that so many young men would follow in Werther's footsteps. Suddenly, several suicide reports came in from different European countries. Young men dressed in a blue coat and yellow pants, the same clothes Werther wore, were found dead on the streets, at home, and elsewhere. All 
had committed suicide with a pistol shot to the head. All of them had read Geth's book, The Sufferings of Young Werther. The influence Geth's book had on young people became a major social problem. The church was far from enthusiastic and condemned the book. Leaders of the church did not appreciate that suicide, which was considered as one of the greatest Christian sins, was presented as a solution to common problems we all face in life. Fearing a possible mass suicide wave, several European countries like Norway, Austria, Denmark, and some states in Germany banned the book. Even Geth had to admit something had gone terribly wrong. When the second edition was printed, Geth was forced to include a warning to all the readers. On the cover, he wrote, Be a man, do not follow in my footsteps. It took a couple of years before the end of the Werther fever. In time, the number of suicides decreased. Norway was the last European country to remove the ban on the book as late as 1820. Today, Geth's book is considered one of the most popular literary works of all time. Historians estimate that about 2,000 people committed suicide after reading The Sufferings of Young Werther, but the exact number of suicides is unknown. What is worth contemplating on is whether our society has really changed. Are we stronger individuals today? Do we have better control of our feelings? Is it really possible we could face a similar situation in modern times, or has our society different views and values? Naturally, the book didn't kill all these people, but its content reminded these individuals of their own current sad situation. Most of us have experienced an unhappy love relationship, but few of us consider it to be a reason worth dying for. On the other hand, over the years we have heard of dangerous cults, like for example the Heaven's Gate, whose leader convinced 38 of his members to commit suicide an action which he claimed would allow their souls to board a spaceship that they believed was hiding behind the comet. Some years ago, there were also certain doomsday prophets who sparked fear among the public when they announced the world was definitely going to end. Several people were prepared to commit suicide immediately. Is also the power of written or spoken words still so strong it can control our actions? Do you have a dark tale to tell? Backdoor Fiction, you can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com, and I might use it in a future episode. You can find links to all of the stories in this episode in the show notes. This episode of Weird Darkness was brought to you by the Nocturnal Readers Box, now an official sponsor of Weird Darkness. If you're a horror fan, you'll love it. As a subscriber to the Nocturnal Readers Box, every month, you'll get at least two horror books, one new release and one previously released title. You'll always get a bookmark and a custom art print that is only available in the Nocturnal Reader's Box. These are not shiny, glittery quotes. They are actual artworks commissioned per the theme each month. They always have seven or more items in the box every month, too, often more. And if you subscribe now, you'll get the May Nocturnal Reader's Box themed who Made This Bloody Effing Mess?, featuring items inspired by Joe Lansdale, Robert McCammon, Anne Rice, Richard Lehman, and a very special wearable that you don't want to miss. 
Subscribe today at thenocturnalreadersbox.com. And there's a special deal just for you, my weirdo family. You can get 15% off your first subscription up to six months by using the promo code WEIRD15. All one word, no spaces. WEIRD15. That's WEIRD15. Sign up now at thenocturnalreadersbox.com. That's thenocturnalreadersbox.com or click the link in the show notes. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.